Welcome to PIDCAST, a podcast brought to you by the Piddington Society. This is a special edition of the PIDCAST. Our names are Amy, Rihanna and Amara and we are 2020 PID grads. This is a mini-series opening discussions relating to advocacy and criminal law with judicial officers of the Supreme and District Courts of Western Australia. This is episode two, part one. Episode two is our District Court episode. In part one, we get to know four of our District Court judges. Judge Sweeney SC, Judge Levy SC, Judge Troy, and the recently appointed Judge Flynn, former magistrate. In part one, we get to know our guests and their honours discuss appearances in court generally. Judge Troy, if you had not pursued law, what job would you do instead? I would be a travel journalist in happier times. (laughs) Uh, What is your coffee order? Flat white. And who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, that you would invite to your ultimate dinner party? Um... After some considerable thought, um, I've gone for Michael Collins, uh, the uh, one of the father figures of Irish independence, as distinct from the civil lawyer, with all respect, um, Sophia Loren, and Bishop Robert Barron, who is the founder of the World on Fire movement. Judge Levy, if you had not pursued law, what would your job be? Well, I'd like to say a cricketer for Australia, but that was never <laughs> Most likely a journalist as well. I, in fact, um, at one point in time, uh, considered swapping from law to journalism. And it's something I'm quite passionate about. Good journalism. What is your coffee order? Skinny flat white. And who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, that you would invite to your ultimate dinner party? There are lots of people I'd love to invite. Um, Nelson Mandela would be my number one. Um, after that, Oliver Wendell Holmes, a great American jurist. And the third person um, is a contentious one, and it's probably Woody Allen. <laughs> um, mostly because I'd like to grill him, but, um, um, but I, he was also quite a good comedic genius. Judge Sweeney, if you had not pursued law, what job would you have done instead? I'm thinking I would have liked to have trained to be a chef and have my own little groovy bistro somewhere. That's what I would have liked to do. What is your coffee order? Coke Zero. (laughs) And any minute now I'm going to quit drinking that (laughs) rubbish. (laughs) And who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, that you would invite to your ultimate dinner party? William Shakespeare, Sir Kenneth Branagh, and Liz Lemon from 30 Rock. Judge Flynn, if you had not pursued law, what job would you have done? Uh, I was going to say either a brewster or I'll say an architect. An architect. What is your coffee order? Long black. And who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, that you would invite to your ultimate dinner party? Uh, I'd have a writer, musician and a sports person. So two of them are dead. Uh, the musician is Lenny Cohen. Uh, the writer is someone called Roger Deacon, who wrote a book called Waterlog and died after that. And uh, the sports person is Courtney Bruce, plays netball for the fever. What's the distinction between making a submission which is permissible and then offering a personal It's a fine distinction, but it is a distinction that I think needs to be preserved as a really a a fairly basic tenet of advocacy. And and the reason for it is essentially is that your opinion as an advocate is is really irrelevant because you're not the decision maker. You're not the decision maker if you're appearing in a criminal trial before a jury. The jury is. And you're not the decision maker if you're appearing in a civil trial. Um, for a judge, the judges, and similarly if you're making submissions on a uh, directions hearing or interlocutory matter. 
So if you volunteer your opinion as opposed to making a submission, you're really taking away what is the right of the tribunal of fact or law to decide. So I, I heard it quite starkly in a recent case where counsel was talking to the jury about the interview that had been conducted with his client that had been played to him during the course of the trial and said, look, I listened to that and I couldn't tell if such and such was lying. And it, it, it really shouldn't be done. Uh, it's not persuasive. Uh, the jury in that case, I think, would resent being told what to do. And it's much better to couch what you say in language such as you might think this or this might be apparent to you. I think it's a much more uh, attractive way of persuading someone. And you've got to understand what your role is. And the most one of the most important aspects of advocacy is the independence of the advocate. So from that starting point, it always is identifiable whether the, the person is being objected by the nature of the question. Questions such as I think, um, I suggest, any question that starts with I is a good indicator that it's actually not an objective submission but something that they personally think. Once you get into the realm of making a, a submission that's actually your personal opinion, you lose the independence of, of the advocate. And then once you lose independence, you lose objectivity and you become less effective and certainly less used to your client. The difference is initially one of form, not substance. So I can either say, well, I listened to that evidence and I just thought that was completely incredible. Or I can say, well, members of the jury, you probably thought when you listened to that evidence that that was completely incredible. And the second is permissible and the first is not. Or you might say, members of the jury, you may well have thought that that evidence was quite implausible. That's also a submission. So you're in fact expressing your personal opinion or what your side requires your personal opinion to be, but the form of it is expressed as a submission. So it's form, not substance, but having said that, I think the distinction is important. And I think if you concentrate on making submissions rather than expressing your personal opinion, you actually give yourself that objectivity and distance to express it in terms of what you want your audience to think rather than just shooting the breeze with the court about what your personal reaction was. So I think it's an important distinction. Um, but it is fair to say an advocate not only shouldn't express their personal opinion, but very often their personal opinion is not actually going to be in favour of their client because they may well think that their own client's version of events is entirely implausible. And so they don't want to be saying that. What I've noticed sometimes with particularly young practitioners is that they may try and ingratiate themselves with the bench and say, use a phrase like, I'm instructed to apply for bail, and really trying to flag, well, I personally don't think we have a good chance of this, but mm -hmm. I feel as though I have to do it for whatever reason. And it's the wrong phrase to use in the circumstance. You either, you've taken instructions, you're either applying for bail or you're not, and if you're applying for bail, you're giving it your best shot, making the distinction that mm -hmm. you've just made. You don't, you don't try and flag what your personal views are because you thereby are undermining really the power of your submission. Occasionally I think the I'm instructed to distinction is okay because occasionally the lawyer is making a submission for someone who everybody knows is quite unreasonable and 
it's known that this submission is going to fail, but particularly, for example, it's a bail application, there's a positive obligation for the court to consider bail. The lawyer's making the application. They'll make it as best they can, but it is, I guess, an attempt to distinguish for counsel between a submission that they are instructed to make and a submission that they actually think has legs. And, you know, in, in civil, it's you've always got these obligations to not actually make a spurious submission to the court. But in, in the criminal field, well, sometimes you, you really are obliged to put a bail application, even though you know it's doomed. And sometimes I think it's it can be an elegant way for counsel to say, I know this submission's doomed, you know this submission's doomed, um, but my client needs to hear it from you rather than me. Uh, and they're handing it over to the court. And sometimes that, I think, has a place. How important is it to be concise both when making oral submissions and questioning witnesses? It's one of the things that has been most clear to me in the last four years or so since I've been on the bench. The imperative to try to be as concise as you can. Your, your time is quite finite. There is different schools of thought, no doubt, as to how retentive a jury, for example, just hearing someone speak at them can absorb that information but it does seem to me that in your preparation and in your uh, analysis so as to give rise to your case theory you should be looking at each witness and thinking well they're not going to capitulate what can I get out of that witness what are the three points the five points that I would hope to walk away from this exercise with and once it's apparent that you're not going to get beyond that then that's probably when you should be concluding that exercise and similarly I think with a uh, a speech to a jury in a in a typically typical case of that's gone for perhaps three or four days. My own view is that the sweet spot is about forty minutes. That's not to say that there won't be exceptions to that general rule, but I, I do see overly lengthy questioning, overly lengthy submissions, and I think it's counterproductive. Uh, I agree with Judge Troy in the fact that um, you can be too long, but it all depends on the nature of the, the case and how long the case has gone. In a case that's a short trial, if you're making submissions that go longer than 45 minutes, then you really are going to lose the interest of the jury. Having said that, if you're in a trial, obviously, that goes for 10 weeks, you can't contain submissions to 45 minutes. So whilst it's important to be concise and to confine the nature of the oral submission, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is ensuring that you've done justice to position you're in, representing whoever you're representing, and covering everything that needs to be covered. And when I say everything, I don't mean you absolutely need to cover everything. You just need to cover the essential things that you're attempting to persuade the jury about. In terms of answering questions from the bench, how would an advocate best best do that? Directly. <laughs> there is nothing worse from a judge's perspective than <coughs> there is a simple answer to a question that counsel does not answer the question directly, but goes round and round in circles before coming to the question. And quite often, the, the question's never answered. And that doesn't help anybody. It certainly doesn't help the judge, and it doesn't help the client, and it doesn't help the counsel's reputation. It's important, I think, not to... There's a balance to be achieved between not capitulating when you uh, receive the first hostile question from the bench challenging an aspect of your case, but making concessions where it's appropriate to do so. So you shouldn't uh, capitulate immediately, but nor should you hold on to a point when it's been clearly exposed in the course of questioning that your, your, your point doesn't actually have any particular force on, on close inspection. But you should always 
be in a position to answer a direct question in particular if if you know your case if the judge says to you what's the relevance of this or where is this going you should be able to answer that immediately uh, and it shouldn't be well I'm just going to press on for another 10-15 minutes and hope that something turns up uh, whilst the next thought occurs to me so you you should always be able to explain why it is that you are asking a particular question and if you can't there's a problem how do I best answer direct questions from the bench yeah with with directness and that actually takes a fair bit of confidence and it particularly takes confidence when the answer you're giving is not the answer that you think the bench wants to hear or where you have to be quite candid that you actually can't help. So if, for example, the court wants to know whether you're able to assist on a particular topic, whether you're familiar with the case law, whether you've got the most recent case, if you haven't, uh, you really can't bluff. If you do, you're only going to come a cropper. And so sometimes you just have to say, no, I'm sorry, I, I can't assist. I haven't read that case. Uh, no, I haven't got that information. If your honour needs it, I can get it. And it's always better to be direct. And so you get people, people are unable to answer, it seems, even the most simple questions. I mean, sometimes, you know, as a judge, I'll, I'll say to counsel, all right, well, how much time do you need? So they're asking an adjournment, how much time do you need? That should be quite simple. It should be, I need half an hour. I need the rest of the day. I'm going to need two days. But instead, the answer will be, well, Your Honour... I mean, the problem is, you know, the state have put us in this position because they've sent us these documents and there's problems with the disks, and I've mentioned this to them before, and at which point I'll say, so how much time do you need? And we can't get the thing to play, and if we could just have... If we could just have maybe half an hour, no, no, probably, no, we probably need an hour. No, well, really, but then we're in the lunch break, so, and I'll say, can you just tell me how much time you need? So that sort of lack of conciseness, I think it comes from insecurity, but it is, it is a lot more impressive to just actually answer the damn question. I think it just, just occurs to me one more story. Sometimes you can answer the question cleverly. Uh, I can recall there was a tricky point of law I knew was coming up in a hearing. I had researched it couldn't find anything about it and the last moment found a Law Reform Commission report that dealt with the precise issue. Anyway, I went into the hearing and confidently said to counsel, and I was showing off, not to my credit, I said, have you read the Law Reform Commission report on this? And counsel replied, no, but I've read the statute, Your Honour. And it was the perfect reply. (laughs) Let's bring us all back to what we should be talking about. (laughs) How circumspect should I be in objecting to questions by my opponent? This is probably a trap for young players. Um, there is a, a fine line between when you should and shouldn't object quite often. If you don't object, ultimately the bench, and subsequently on an appeal if there is an appeal, might assume <coughs> that there's a forensic decision behind the failure to object. So it's very important that you do object if it's necessary to do so. That doesn't mean it's always necessary to do so. If it's something that's not an issue, although it may be inadmissible, although it may be leading, there's no point in objecting. I'd just let it go. If it doesn't hurt your case, don't object, because it really doesn't assist. And there is always a danger that a jury or tribunal is going to think or take the view that you're obstructionist. But it is always important to object if it's necessary to do so. Don't hold back. Don't be concerned about objecting if you really need to object. Um, There certainly have been cases in the Court of Appeal 
where questions have been raised about why council didn't object. And there have been significant issues where council haven't objected. And I'm aware of cases where council have said things like, well, I just don't believe in jumping up and down. Well, <laughs> it's your job to jump up and down if it's necessary to do so. So the short answer to that is think about whether it is actually hurting your case or not. And that I think it is the tendency that one sees with more junior advocates to object more than they should, and senior advocates do not object quite as much. And often you will see someone just almost whisper down the bench and, or just say, may I just speak with my friend? And then the position is resolved between the two advocates. And when that happens in front of me, I just don't see the need to get involved. So that can, that can be productive. Sometimes just catching the, the eye of the judge to indicate a feeling of discomfiture, it might persuade the judge to intervene. But if you do need to make an objection, and clearly there will be cases when you need to do so, a couple of things to bear in mind. Firstly, if it's a jury trial, always don't think as a default position you have to get the jury out. That seems to be a, a common mindset because, of course, the jury shouldn't be exposed to controversial, protracted legal argument. But if it's a really simple point, which the judge is going to rule on then and there, um, you shouldn't be asking the jury to go out, and most judges would not cause the obvious inconvenience to the jury who will often be curious and resent why it is that they've been excluded at that stage so only get the jury out if you absolutely have to and if you do object do it formally make sure that you stand articulate the objection as concisely as possible don't make a speech and conversely if you're the person who has said something or asked something that's been objected to take a seat uh, whilst your opponent objects that's basic courtroom etiquette it's not always complied with and don't argue down the bar table at each other. That often happens, or sometimes happens at least, and there's a difference between barking opinions down the uh, bar table at your opponent as opposed to in a constructive way conferring and perhaps resolving an objection. I mean, what I would say is from, from the bench, there's nothing more annoying than having to constantly deal with objections, which, you know, taking up more time than just if the evidence had have come in. I mean, I'm someone who would love if we had no rules of evidence and let the bench, the arbiter, decide how much weight to give everything. So no doubt there may be occasions when something is so damning it's important to keep it hidden from the, whoever's making the decision. Generally, I would err on the side of letting it go if I, if I was an advocate in terms of the impact upon me uh, on the bench. But I, I can see there's room for other things. I think, um, for starters, you need to work out who your audience is. If you're before a judge alone, you can trust a judge to disregard evidence which, in the grand scheme of things, might, might be hearsay, there might be limited weight attached to it. Uh, it. The question may be objectionable in that form, but the evidence is admissible, even if the question was appalling. You can trust the judge to be able to distinguish uh, on that sort of level. So I think you should definitely be circumspect when you're before a judge alone. When you're before a jury, I think it's very, very important to first ask yourself, why are you objecting? If you're objecting just because you can, then don't. Because you actually see counsel objecting to evidence that is quite in their favour. But they're objecting because they're outraged that that question breaches the rule against hearsay. And so they object. And um, I, I kid you not, I've heard counsel objecting to witnesses saying how old they are because of course none of us truly remember being born and we've been told that that's how old we are. And you know, you sort of feel as a judge, well, look, yes, I know it is hearsay evidence, but seriously, why? Um, and if, if 
if it was a question where it was an element of a charge you had to prove how old the complainant was and the state hadn't bothered to get the birth certificate then I suppose maybe there'd be a tactical advantage but I remember in a trial many years ago when I was in that position as counsel and so instead I had to go through this whole ridiculous do you celebrate your birthday every year? What date do you celebrate your birthday on? Etc. Etc. So that in the end, I'm asking the jury to draw an inference that the complainant's mother didn't lie to her about when she was born, and this is how old she is. And then the same counsel who'd objected first question to his client, who gets in the witness box, "How old are you?" Then stand up and say, "Well, I object to that." And he had no idea how to get around that. It wasn't important, but it was a sort of a tit for tat, and that's the next aspect of it. If all you're doing is objecting because you can, and I see this as quite often a bit of a bullying technique, to just rattle the other side, and I particularly object to it when you've got a quite senior experienced counsel who's doing this to a quite junior inexperienced counsel, and they won't let them get a word in edgeways because it's the junior's first or second trial and they're nervous and it's true, the questions are not quite proper as to form, but when you're just rattling them, that's, that's not in the interests of justice. It doesn't let the trial flow along. And when all that's actually wrong is that the question's a bit poor as to form, but the evidence is clearly admissible, then I really feel, you know, look, object if they're doing something sort of annoying and they, and they need to curb that. But if it's just objecting to show off, then really I, I'm not very in favour of that. Um, but if you are going to object, then you need to object before the evidence has actually been led. So it, 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 it's tricky, and objecting to evidence is, I think, one of the most difficult things for new counsel to learn. Because if you're going to object, you've got to object quickly. If you're going to object, you've got to do it properly. And I have an aversion to the counsel who stays seated and sort of says, well, I don't know how you can ask that question, but doesn't actually object. So as a judge, I just ignore them when they do that. And then there's the other, the other pet hate of mine, where counsel stands up and says, well, Your Honour, look, I've let it go until now, <laughs> but, uh, in which I usually say, but I'm not interested. Are you making an objection? That's a sort of a, I've been a really nice person until mm. now, but it's beyond the pale. Well, your objection's either good or it isn't. And it doesn't matter whether you've let it go until now. Um, so, yes, I, I, I don't appreciate counsel who just add unnecessary tension to the proceedings by jumping up and down like a two-bob watch. But if you're going to object, then object. Stand up swiftly and say, objection, which then stops everything, and then the judge will hear your objection. How important is it to be precise in your language? Well, it's everything. Language is, language is our... That's all we have, uh, isn't it? I think as lawyers... The great thing you learn as you get older is it's all about choosing words carefully and you can you can be a better advocate judge by being more judicious in your selection of words and more is not better that's what it comes down to precision is what we're about and the biggest difficulty with imprecise language if you're questioning a witness is that it renders your answer useless if your question isn't precisely pitched the answer can't be used. So I sort of, you know, knocked up a couple of yeah. examples. Did you walk out or did you run out? And the witness says, yes. 
another one and you don't recall saying I'll kill you and then shooting him five times and then rushing out that side door and getting into a yellow Highlander and the witness says no mate you got that wrong what do you do with that which bit got wrong the whole bit was wrong all of it was wrong some of it was wrong uh, questions that begin with do you remember are generally flawed do you remember that your teacher in year six was Mrs Smith no so was the teacher Mrs Smith whereas if you ask the question your year six teacher was Mrs Smith, right? The answer you will get is possibly I don't remember. So now you know it's that the witness doesn't remember as opposed to no, the teacher wasn't Mrs Smith or alternatively I don't remember. Uh, things like so, and you'll hear this sort of question in a civil case, I've heard questions like this. So how long did you suffer pain from all those injuries up until say now, all those injuries? And you might get an answer like, oh, They've mostly, they've mostly resolved, or some of them are still painful. What do you do with that? As opposed to saying to your client, okay, well, let's go through them one by one, the fractured elbow. How bad was that immediately after the accident? Six months on, two years on, how is it now? Let's go to the foot, the toe. And then you get precision and then you get answers that when you're addressing the court in your closing address, you can say, this is the evidence as opposed to looking at the transcript and thinking, damn, I thought I'd got that evidence, but turns out I haven't. So... And a lot of those questions come in cross-examination when, and they're in the form of non-leading questions. It's as if the cross-examiner is mm. going to some effort to ask a non-leading question. And I'm mm. thinking, just ask a leading question so you yes. get a precise answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, for every rule there's an exception, but I mean, the general rule with cross-examination is leading questions. Yeah. So that you get that precision, as I say, once you're more experienced, you know that these rules can always be broken very effectively. But leading questions only is a really good rule for cross-examination and it gives you that, that precision. So yeah, precision is, is very important. I think precision is more important than conciseness. Give me precision over conciseness. Words are your tool as an advocate, so you need to constantly hone your skills in that regard to develop as precise a vocabulary, as extensive and as rich vocabulary as you can and just be very careful as to whether the phraseology that you're using is is not sufficiently clear and the classic example of that is where there is a indictment with a number of accused and they're all obviously each has his or her own potential criminal liability and you'll sometimes see the uh, an advocate referring to they did this you need to drill down and say well no who are you talking about there specifically what did he or she do as opposed to uh, uh, the very vagueness that inevitably emerges when you use the word they in that context. I agree, that's right. Precision is everything. Words are everything. And if you don't, if you're not precise, then you leave the tribunal, you leave the jury in some ambiguity as to what you're actually meaning. Once you clarify things, once you go to the, the precise issues that are at hand using precise language, you leave nothing... Uh, to, to chance. So it is so important to be precise and concise with your language. How ready should an advocate be to move on to the next phase of the hearing? Totally ready. I can put this into context in criminal trials in that in a criminal trial the accused may or may not testify. That may or may not have been revealed with any certainty until the actual moment where it's his turn to testify. And if he says no I am always surprised when sometimes the prosecutor looks surprised. 
and then they look even more surprised when they now realise it's time for their closing address. And I sort of feel that it wasn't all, all roads have always been leading to this point, <laughs> and it was always going to be a yes or no answer from the accused, and there was a 50% chance of him saying, no, I'm not testifying, and then it was your turn. Yeah. Uh, so I sort of feel, unless it's one of those very complex cases, and when you're in one of those, you know it, it's been going for weeks, and there have been adjournments here and adjournments there, and then the trial judge is far more likely to say, look, I think everyone would benefit mm. from a day to, you know, just refine the closings. But those sort of cases are rare. Generally speaking, if the accused doesn't testify and you're the prosecutor, you're up, you're next, and no, you don't get an adjournment overnight. These things progress. You have to be totally ready for the next stage. And the same for if your client's convicted, you have to be ready, I think. Sometimes it makes sense to sentence on the spot sometimes. Actually, as soon as the magistrate did. You shouldn't need time to compose yourself. No. After a conviction. I think that's yeah. pretty important. That goes back to that sort of objectivity. Yes, if you're defence counsel, be ready for the fact that your client might get convicted and you yeah. you shouldn't need the night for therapy before you can then do the plea mitigation. Yeah, and sometimes... It's probably therapeutic to have the whole process, whilst every whilst all the facts are, are mm. in everyone's mind, mm. to have it, to have the whole thing determined, depending on what it's going to be, I suppose. Of course, judges, on the other hand, can adjourn whenever they like. Yes, naturally, we need time to compose. That's ourselves. right. To illustrate it um, with a couple of things, you you should always be not assume that things are going to get to a certain point, and then you can have you're going to have a break until either later that day or the following day. So, counsel will often say, well. Are we going to stop for the day there? And the judge may well be thinking, well, no, I, we want to use the time as efficiently as possible. What other witnesses do you have available? And you should always, if you're responsible for calling witnesses, don't run out of witnesses unless it's completely out of your control. So don't assume that you'll get to a certain point and the judge will say that's fine for the day. Similarly, when the evidence finishes, there does appear to be increasingly a tendency to assume that if the evidence has finished any time from lunchtime onwards or even slightly earlier that there will automatically be a break before closing addresses. Now there are different schools of thoughts as to that as to whether the court would be best assisted by allowing a break or was to counsel to break away from the task of cross-examination, reflect on the transcript and uh, put together a, a more helpful closing address. But there does seem to me to be a tendency to assume that that will be permitted whereas it won't always be permitted and you should be in position in a shorter trial to deliver your closing address as soon as you're called upon to do so. And similarly, when a person's been convicted in particular after a trial, and also perhaps if they pleaded guilty, but particularly after a trial, again, there seems to be a tendency to assume that the, there will be the next natural stage is that it's bound to be adjourned for various reports. And not always the case. If the offence for which the person's been convicted is so self-evidently serious that immediate imprisonment is the only option, and they're not especially young, and there's no suggestion of any causal mental illness, there's no real reason why within a fairly short period of time, either immediately or within an hour or so, the judge should not be proceeding to sentence, and you should be in a position, it seems to me, to be in a position to move to that phase as opposed to automatically assuming that the judge is going to allow a three-, four-week break. I think don't assume anything, particularly in trials, whether they're civil or criminal, they are dynamic. Don't assume that you will have time, and the key to being... A good lawyer is preparation. It's 90% preparation. So always assume that you will, assume the worst. Assume that you will be called upon. Assume that you will need to go to the next phase immediately. And be prepared for it.
And if it doesn't happen, you've got the luxury of more time. But if it does, you're ready to proceed immediately. Uh, and as I say, it's all about preparation. If you don't prepare properly, you're going to be found out. From Amy, Rihanna and Amara, we wanted to say thank you for listening to this podcast mini-series. We extend our sincere gratitude to our honourable guests, the Piddington Society, and all those who assisted in the production of this series. Without wanting to sound too cliche, if you liked the content, then please like, subscribe, and or leave us some feedback.